welcome to another episode of the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every Tuesday I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two extraordinary moms look the same. We all have a story to tell, and we are all mothering in our own way. So let's celebrate that and learn from one another. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please share this show with a friend. Good morning, and welcome back to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to spend an hour with us today. You're in for a real treat. Prepare to be inspired. Prepare to definitely shed a tear or two. But the purpose of this episode is not just to make you cry. It is to share an extraordinary woman with you, and that is Jennifer Saban Sadly. Jen is an extraordinary woman who, though not a mom, her story is incredible. And I really felt compelled to have Jen on the show today to talk about her lifelong journey with cystic fibrosis, with getting a lung transplant, a kidney transplant, and just day to day, what her life looks like with this disease. She's also written a book. She is a food blogger. She's one of my favorite go-to recipe sources. And we just have an incredible conversation. So prepare to be inspired by my friend, Jen Sadley. All right. I want to welcome Jen Satley today. Hey, Jen. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you. Where am I talking to you from today? I am in Carlsbad. I am sitting at my kitchen table enjoying Santa Ana winds. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Is it smoky where you are? You know, it's not. I think it blew the other direction. The first day of the fires, we could definitely see it, but... Gosh, uh, not right now. We have been getting hammered. We're recording this in December, and it's just the saddest thing, all this devastation. it These winds are just moving the fire too, too fast. It's so oh, scary. Yeah. So sad. These poor families. Well, I, you and I did not know each other growing up. We grew up in the same community. I knew of you, and I knew of your story, and now I am glad to call you a friend. And so I just... I'm excited to share your journey today. And so for people that may not know you, Jen, will you just give a little background on who you are? Sure. Um, Yeah, just briefly, I grew up in Poway. I'm the second youngest of five kids. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's in interior design, and so I did that for a few years and had a bunch of different jobs. And then finally started a food blog, Carlsbad Cravings, in Oh boy, I guess it was 2014, so almost four years ago. Amazing. And I reference your recipes all the time. I've shared your honey lime burrito bowls like more times than I can count. Um, what else have I made? Oh, your French dips are so good. I mean, I've made a lot of them. The, the million dollar penne, is that what it is? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Ziti, oh my gosh. So good. So obviously we'll link to everything because people just need to know more of your recipes. But <laughs> I, you. you're my go-to. Well, you're my go-to for sure. Food makes people happy, so yes. it's, a, it's a fun job. It, I bet. I bet. We're going to talk way more about that as well. But let's talk more about your growing up years. You did not have a typical growing up childhood experience. Can you tell people why that is? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was normal. It was my normal because mm-hmm. I didn't know anything differently. But I grew up with the disease called cystic fibrosis, and I'll probably call it CF after this. If you're not familiar with CF, it's a disease that mainly affects the lungs and digestive system. And so to get a little graphic, people produce extra thick, sticky mucus that harbors infections and kills uh, lung tissue, basically. It blocks the airways, 
pancreas and other organs and basically individuals end up suffocating to death because their lungs become damaged and it kills all the lung tissue. So when I was growing up, I knew the life expectancy back then was around, um, it was in the early 20s. And so I knew that I was kind of healthier than the average CF kid. So I just matter-of-factly thought, okay, well, then I'll probably live to my 30s. And it was just kind of a matter-of-fact thing. It was way in the future, so I didn't think about it too much. But that was kind of my hmm. my mental state. <laughs> That's, yeah, and that's and like you said, like that's your normal, but it's not normal normal. And so, and in addition, you had siblings with this as well. Your older brother had this, and so as he was older and he was further along down that road of meeting that life expectancy kind of threshold, what was that like watching him? And I know this is really personal and hard for you to talk about, so I appreciate you being open because I think these are the questions that people would really want to know, but. It's, it's hard to talk about this. It really is. It is. It's something that you don't think about on a daily basis because it is so hard. And then when you start talking about it, all these those raw emotions I just know. come surging back. So I'm going to try and keep it together. The emotions so are welcome. It's okay. The emotions are welcome. Uh, um, it was, you know, Justin was such a pillar of strength. He made having CF look easy, but at the same time it was, alarming to see, you know, how much he coughed. And we each did uh, breathing treatments hours and hours, morning and night, just to try and keep our lungs clear. Uh, But in addition to that, he also was hospitalized and had home IVs probably every six months since age he was six, all growing up. And as he got older in his high school years, the IVs became more frequent. His and in the end stages, his appetite basically, you know, became nothing. But he still had such a positive attitude that I don't think I, well, I know I didn't correlate, you know, his behavior with the fact that that meant he was dying. Mm-hmm. I just always assumed, you know, the, the CF research would come in time, he, there would be a cure. Um And he, like I said, he just made having CF look easy. Even when he was on his IVs, he'd go out and he'd paintball or go to church (laughs) dances or ride motorcycles. And he would bring all his IV stuff with him. He'd hang his, this is back in the days of like the drip IVs. Uh And so he'd hang his IV sack from the rearview mirror and be doing an IV while he was driving. Oh my gosh. He was just amazing, and he had such a positive, positive attitude. He, you know, he never, ever talked about uh, CF in a negative way. It Mm. was, you know, as I look back, I'm like, here's this 19-year-old. It's just absolutely mind-blowing, boggling that, you know, that someone of that age can have so much strength, and not only be positive in his own life, but always looking out for others and trying to uh, lift others when he himself, you know, was not feeling the best. Mm. Um, But as he, as his health declined, uh, he was in the hospital for, uh, for months. And then he finally came home. And, you know, I remember I, I was scratching his back in the morning before school. That was like kind of our, um, our bonding thing that we did. Mm-hmm. 
and I never... I'm glad you can cut all this crying time out. It's it's all (laughs) Um, good. You know, I never, ever would have thought that that was the last time I would see him, you know, fully, fully functioning before I saw him dying. Um, So I got back from school that day and my mom just said, I don't think Justin's going to make it. My brother and I, my other brother, um, who doesn't have CF, we just both, you know, dropped our backpacks and ran to his room and, and he'd been waiting for us. Um, you know, I'm sure it was the, the angels there to, to take him that he kept telling them to wait. And so he waited for us and we got to say goodbye. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And for people that have lost somebody that they love so much, it's like no matter how long has passed, I mean, this is years and years ago. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get better. Like there's still a hole. There's always a hole. I yeah. think time definitely definitely helps just because it's but you have to be doing positive things that time sure. if you, um so time helps but it definitely doesn't heal you know whenever there's a wound there's always going to be a scar and it's it's painful to, to open that up absolutely and that had to be really sobering for you realizing like I have this same thing what for was sure. that like did you it think was... much about yourself during that time or was it really just about the loss no, it was really about the loss. Mm. I was still pretty healthy at that time. This was my freshman year of high school. Okay. Um, I'd only had one IV hospitalization, and he'd had, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens. So I really saw myself in a different okay. different place, for sure. Uh, and it wasn't until my sophomore year of high school that things changed dramatically for me. It was night and day difference. I, I had both Justin and I had a bacteria called Bulcazaria sepatia that only 3% of people with CF have. And this bacteria is so, so bad because IV antibiotics at the time and not many today don't treat it. And so you get this bacteria and you're on IVs and they, and they don't do anything. They don't help. Mm. And so this, bacteria can kind of lay dormant and then flare up and it flared up for me in my sophomore year of high school and I started taking less classes just because I had to sleep in I was so exhausted and then less classes the next semester and and I look back and I'm like I can see the steady progression but at the time I just thought it was a little speed bump I'd get better I, I didn't realize then that that was my my turning point that 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 is when I was dying. I had told myself when I saw Justin, like I made a very mental note, very distinct mental note that when I saw myself doing the things he was doing, you know, having constant fevers, constant IVs, constant oxygen, uh, no appetite, that that's when I would know I was dying. And I hadn't gotten to that point yet. So I, so I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. And you're right. a high schooler. High schoolers yeah. are usually worried about the next dance coming up. They're not having <laughs> to think about those types of markers to watch out for. Oh my gosh. So sophomore year, your health started drastically declining and you were in need of serious intervention. And what was that next step that needed to happen for you? Well, at the time, I didn't, I, like I said, I didn't know how sick I was until 
I it was the last day of my sophomore year of high school. I went to my other brother's graduation, you know, completely feverish. I'd been having fevers basically that whole year and I didn't even realize it. Mm. I didn't even think to check my temperature. I just was so used to feeling crummy, you know? Right, right. So I was admitted to the hospital the very next day and I was in the hospital for weeks and just not getting better. And finally I was able to go home on home IVs and still not getting better, not getting, not getting better. And it got to the point where I was on oxygen 24 seven. I was having fevers, like 104 fevers all throughout the day, which made eating really hard. You know, I was throwing up a lot. I had zero energy. I was basically bedridden. I, you know, didn't even have energy to brush, to stand, to brush my teeth. I had to, my mom would get the, sorry, I mentioned my mom, but I, all these, all these emotions come. Well, we can talk even more about your mom because your mom is a saint. (laughs) She is incredible. And the fact that you even felt like any of this was normal and you could have a normal growing up years to this point I mean, it's just such a large credit to your parents and their perspective. And so I'm sure that does just unearth so many emotions. Your mom is incredible. She is. She is an angel Mm -hmm. Um, here on earth. She is the most unselfish, positive person. She has, she's so kind. She has no guile. She is just, just full of, Christ-like love. She has never, ever said a negative thing about anyone. She's just such an incredible, incredible Christ-like example. And growing up, she, she treated, we were treated normally. Um, and we were encouraged, you know, just to do the best we could. And we always just lived with hope because of their, uh, both of my parents, incredibly positive, positive attitude. Mm. And when I always talk about on the show with moms, like the kids that you have and you are sent, like you are the perfect parent for them. And there's no doubt that the five kids in your family were meant for your mom and dad. I mean, there's never been a truer example of that to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, And they were, they were meant for us. Yes, absolutely. And so you were saying that your mom would do some things, um, so as you were getting sicker, tell me about what your mom would, would do or what, where were you going to go with that? Yeah, just the, you know, the, I couldn't do really anything for myself. So she would, you know, get my toothpaste on my toothbrush. Uh, like I said, eating was so hard. So she would make anything that I thought I might eat, you know, and then I would usually just end up throwing it up anyway. But she was just right there. And not only with all that, she was in charge of, all these IVs I had to do throughout the day, her and my uh, dad switched off. And, you know, that in itself is exhausting, the early mornings, the late nights. Uh, but she did she did everything. Wow. But in addition to the all the physical things she did, she was just such a, a calm, peaceful strength mm. to have by my side. And she had already suffered a great loss as well. Yes. Yeah. So the talk about compartmentalizing your grief while tending to the rest of your family, including another very sick child. Like that is incredible. 
It's incredible. Yeah. You know, at the, at the time, you know, cause I didn't think I was dying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't see it in those, in that light. But now as I look back right. and I see that she had just suffered the loss of a son, which was incredibly hard for all of us, but I can't imagine it on a whole nother level as a mother where you're mm-hmm. trying to keep this day from coming, you know, your son's entire life. And then to have to see a daughter going through the same thing where, you know, that that's where it's headed and trying to do everything to keep it from happening. It's yeah, she's so strong. (laughs) She is. And so when did a lung transplant become the necessary next step for you? Cause that's a big deal. That's like, that's, that's a last resort, isn't it? Uh, it is, it was, so it was while I was super sick, they listed me for cadaveric transplant, which is a traditional transplant from a brain dead individual. And that is the route that most people, uh, people are able to do, but I was too sick for a cadaveric transplant that by the time that option would have been made available, I would have been dead. And so I was listed, but then my parents started looking for other options. And my dad had heard about a living donor lung transplant years ago. And what that is, is there's two healthy donors. And well, let me step back. Everyone has five lobes in their lungs. There's three on one side and two on the other. And so what they do in a living donor transplant is they take two lobes one from each person to create a new set of lungs. So for the recipient, they take out all your lungs, all your lobes, and they replace them with just two lobes. And so it's an incredible procedure. It is uh, very rare because of the risk involved and the pain involved to the donors because they have to actually uh, break ribs to go and get the Uh, go get the uh, part of the lung and just lots of complications there, but it's an incredible option. And it was for me that, and it saved my life. And so tell me about the two men that stepped up to donate parts of their lungs for you, Jen. Yeah, it's, Oh, these men are absolutely incredible. I, so they're both men from my church. One was the Bishop at the time. And he had worked with my dad. His name is Graham Bullock. And he had seen my dad suffer when my brother died. You know, he was working with him at the time. And he had had a prayer in his heart that if he ever was able to do do anything to help ease the suffering of his friend, that, um, that he would be able to do that. And so when he heard of so first of all, we we went to family and friends, or they heard about it, and every you know family volunteered first, but none of them were candidates. So when Graham and Jim Davies, Dr. Jim Davies, heard that this was a need, both of them were incredibly gracious and courageous, and and stepped forward. So Graham had been training to hike the base camp of Himalayas. So he was, it's just a tender mercy. He was in the best physical shape of his life, which made him, you know, capable of saving mine. Mm. And Graham, Dr. 
uh, Jim Davies was the husband of one of my favorite Sunday school teachers. And I didn't even really know him at all. He was just, you know, he knew my parents and he didn't hesitate at all. Uh, Becky, his wife was telling him what she'd heard. And he asked what are the requirements to be a donor? And she said, you know, same blood type, healthy, strong lungs, usually taller. And he said, that's me. I want to do it. And, and he stepped forward and got all his tests done. Even when he was first told that, you know, thank you so much, but we were set. We were all set with donors because we thought some of my other family members were going to work out. And he went ahead and he had just, he just had a feeling that he needed to persist and get these tests done. And being a doctor himself, he was able to do that. So when we were down to the wire and the other members were disqualified, he stepped right forward and said, I'm ready to go, which was incredible. I didn't realize that, that he just kept going anyway, even though he didn't know if he was going to need to be called up. And that's just such a testament to doing your part, regardless of whether you need to step up or not. Like our, our efforts in life are always worth it and Absolutely. you just never know how they'll be used and his was used in a very big way but we can all do that in our own life absolutely and I think listening to that listening to your conscience or the the spirit whatever you call it it's it's there and it's mm. guiding and directing you and if you're take the time to listen you can do extraordinary things wow that is oh my gosh I just get chills every time so you literally have none of your own lungs anymore it's theirs, Cor- right? Correct. Yep. I have oh. two lobes for my lungs. Oh my goodness. And so that day they took lobes from each of them and replaced yours. Yeah. What <laughs> what what do you remember about I mean, I'm sure you were highly medicated and in a lot of pain. But what do well, you remember from that that time? Well, before the surgery I was, well, let me step back. I was never worried. I had a calm assurance that everything was going to be fine. I wasn't, I wasn't worried at all. And I even, like, I didn't even really say like goodbye to my family before surgery. It was just the casual goodbyes because I I knew I would be fine. Mm. And to me, the hardest part of the whole process wasn't the transplant. It was living with cystic fibrosis for 16 years. Like everyone was like, Oh, transplant this big deal. And I was like, in my head, I'm thinking, no, that's the easy part. This life is hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's been living this way for, you know, that no one sees, no one knew how hard it was. Yeah. And it'd been hard for years and years. And it was the transplant that was, you know, it's like the sunshine of relief. I was just nothing but excited. I was so excited to be able to do things that I couldn't do to, you know, to be able to to walk and rollerblading when it was cool <laughs> at the time. Like, I was just so excited to be able to go out with friends. I couldn't even, I couldn't even go to the movies with friends. I tried once in between IVs and I was you know, overcome with fevers and so exhausted that I couldn't even do that. Mm. So for me, the transplant was just nothing but excitement. Wow. But I remember the night before my transplant, I told my dad, I said, you know, either, either outcome is fine. I will either wake up with new lungs or I will be in a better place. And either way, don't be sad because 
you know, I'm fine either way. And, and so that was kind of the, the tone, like it was a very mm. exciting time for me. Um, but when I woke up, I was intubated. So I had a tube down my throat that was breathing for me and that would stay in for, I believe it was a total of seven days. So when I woke up, you know, I didn't have the sensation right away of breathing with the new lungs. I was, well, I first woke up, um, and I, I couldn't really open my eyes. There were just kind of like little slits and I couldn't move any part of my body because the drugs for paralysis hadn't worn off yet. Mm. And I remember <laughs> that was back when, you know, Oprah, I loved Oprah. <laughs> and I had watched a, a show where people woke up during surgery. So that was like my immediate first thought. I'm like, no, no, put me under. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I don't know. But so it was after surgery, but they, my body was not reacting well. My blood pressure was all over the place. It was, it was a very uh, turbulent time. And, you know, there are alarms going off everywhere. And I heard one of the doctors say, she's making me nervous. And another doctor say, who wants to tell the parents? And I'm thinking, what is going on? I'm in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> so oh. that was my first experience. Uh, but, you know, things, things miraculously, again, so many miracles in this whole process. It's unbelievable. Um, turned around. And I was able to uh, be stabilized. After a few days, they put me under to, you know, to keep things okay. And then I, they brought me back out again. And I was able to write on a whiteboard and communicate with my family um, for the first time really after surgery. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And during this time, I mean, I remember being on the fringes of this, and my husband grew up with your family as well, and he remembers this so clearly, just how many people rallied around you. I mean, aside from the two men that endured so much to give you lobes of their lungs, the, the numbers of people praying and fasting and loving you, it's that had to just be indescribable. What did that teach you during that time? Were you aware of how conscious people were of you and your precious life? I knew this, uh, the stake, the, you know, a bunch of people from our church were, were praying and fasting, but I don't think I knew the extent of how deeply it impacted people. Mm. But at the same time, knowing that people cared and were and were praying for me I I felt I felt the strength it is amazing throughout my life how many times that has happened I can feel and I know where the strength is coming from and that it's from from the prayers and fasting of others and it's truly truly humbling to be the recipient of of that love and that and that sacrifice it really is indescribable. And I mean, for all that you've lost because of this disease, that has to be an incredible gain. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, I feel, you know, and I don't look at it that way. Like with this disease, mm. I feel like everyone has their trials and some are just more physical than others. I feel like I was blessed in so many other ways, you know, where much is required, much is given. And I was given the greatest parents and, you know, I live in a, in a free country. I have food and water. And I grew up with my parents always talking about 
um, other other people in you know third world countries, villages they they had traveled to, and you know what they were trying to do to help. And so I grew up with a very uh, different perspective of what um, what being blessed really is. I feel mm-hmm. like I felt like I was so 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 blessed because I had you know I had my sight. I was could walk. I had um, this beautiful. Uh, home and family. So I felt always so blessed and never felt that CF was, and still to this day, that CF is uh, a bad thing in my life. It is just part of my life. Wow. That is what makes you so incredible. Wow. Well, again, I I don't feel like it's me at all. I feel Mm. like I, um, it all comes back to my parents who have such a strong eternal perspective and that is, to me, what makes life, uh, that's the difference between, you know, a, a fulfilled and happy life and a miserable life. When you sure. live life with an eternal perspective and you know that this time on earth is short and that it is just a drop in the ocean compared with the, you know, the life after and the incredible amount of joy and love that we're going to experience forever and ever then it's it makes doing hard things easy Mm. we can all do hard things especially when you know it's it'll be so worth it in the hereafter Mm. you are so so right you're so right oh and so you got your new lungs did you go to the movies did you did you assume (laughs) that regular you went to college you started yeah. doing things. So technically, was the CF gone or how – what is that? Can you give language to that for me? Absolutely, yes. My transplant doctor at the time said, see, this transplant doesn't cure your disease. It gives you a different disease. So mm. what she meant by that was CF will always be a part of your life because it's in your pancreas. It's in your sinuses. And I still have that bad bacteria, but don't – well, sorry, sepatia in my sinuses, which causes lots of problems. Okay. But what she meant by the different disease is that having a transplant, especially because I have the sepatia, is a different disease. I have to be extremely careful around germs. I because I take lots. I have take a gazillion pills, many of which are immunosuppressants, so that my body doesn't reject my lungs. And so it's just this different lifestyle. Mm. I just have to be super careful and aware of my body. And it's very different than CF where you just muscle through anything. You know, if I get a little cold, I know it might turn into pneumonia. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That really helps to understand why it continues to be a struggle even after a successful, quote unquote, successful lung transplant. Um, Okay, that helps. That helps a lot. And so, yeah, as- well, actually, the statistic only seventeen percent. This was of a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure what the latest statistics are. But mm-hmm. only seventeen percent of people with lung transplants live past ten years. Mm-hmm. And so, I am very aware and very um, grateful for every day, and still uh, think of you know my 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 health constantly, even though I've had the transplant. Sure. And how many years exactly has it been? It was 18. It's been 18 since this past November. 
So you've had new lungs longer than you've had your old crummy lungs. Yeah, it's oh, pretty, ama- pretty, pretty wow. amazing. Wow, that is incredible. And so as you approached college, as you thought about your future, what did you see for yourself, Jen? What, what were your dreams and what were the limitations that maybe you were putting on yourself or did you have any? Immediately after the transplant, I felt like I could conquer the world. <laughs> I had so much energy and I did get pneumonias right after, as, but they weren't it's not the constant battle with your lungs where you're doing breathing treatments every day. You don't have to do that. It's, you would get a pneumonia, you take care of it. And so I was still very hopeful and optimistic and I didn't know the grim statistics regarding, um, mortality of those with low bar transplants. And so I was very positive. Um, I'm still positive and hopeful, but I think I'm a little more realistic, but at the time I, I finished high school, I went to, Uh, I got a bachelor's in interior design and love that. And I don't think I put limitations on myself at the time. It wasn't until I started researching for my book that I realized, oh, wait, (laughs) Um, you know, because I'm not going to get a transplant. My parents tell me, by the way, uh, you might not live that long. Like we didn't talk like that. So I had to research and find this for myself that I – you know, I might not live that long after a transplant. Mm. And so after I was researching for my book and I realized that I think I, I definitely had a new perspective. So it was, you know, getting another perspective again. And it made me, you know, wonder more about marriage and children. But at the same time, I've always tried to, um, just do what I'm supposed to do, do good things, uh, stay close to the Lord. And so I was never fearful. Like fear Mm -hmm. is, fear really isn't, sorry, fear really isn't a part of my life because I know that whatever is supposed to happen will happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I knew these things and I just knew that um, if things were supposed to unfold, you know, like getting married and whatnot, that it would. And otherwise, um, I was happy either way. Mm -hmm. I was just happy to be alive. (laughs) And so tell me about meeting your now husband. Oh, Patrick, he's the best <laughs> ever. He seems like the best. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's so fun. He's so cute. He's so sweet. He's so kind. He's so he's so good. He's so pure. He is he is my soulmate for sure. Uh, so how we met, he was visiting my my church, and he because he lived in a different area, but we had some mutual friends in common. And he sat behind me, and he just had a feeling he really needed to get to know me. Mm. We didn't talk. I didn't see him. Uh, but I was dating someone else at the time who had – it become long distance because he was getting a master's at Stanford. And I just had a feeling I needed to break up with him that very same day Patrick saw me. Mm. So I did it. I didn't know the reasons, but I had learned what the spirit felt like and – what it meant. And so, and I had acted on these promptings I've gotten through my life. And so I knew that was what I was supposed to do. Wow. And so I did. And then a couple weeks later, 
I was in Mexico with Melanie Burke. This was when, you know, Mexico was fun and safe to go to. And... <laughs> she still goes all the time. It impresses me. <laughs> and so we were down there at her parents' house, us and some friends, and he was down there uh, with a surf on a surf trip with some friends, some of uh, which knew me. One of one was my old roommate, actually, and so he'd been asking her all about me. And she'd been telling him, oh, she's awesome. You should meet her. <laughs> and then we start walking down the street in a little city called Puerto Nuevo. Not even city, a little village. And Patrick is standing there and he starts, you know, like to his brother, dude, dude, it's that girl. <laughs> and so and so our mutual friend called me over and that's where we met for the first time. Wow. And then how quickly did you know and, and how did your disease and your health issues play into your ability to just be real with him that I don't know my life expectancy? I mean, none of us know our life expectancy, you know, but, right. but it's Absolutely. different for you. Yeah, it's just more in, in your face for me. <laughs> so so we, we started hanging out a little bit and I just felt so comfortable talking with him. But then we, you know, I dated someone else. And then, but I was just watching him the whole time. He moved mm. down to my area. He was in my church and I was just watching him and he was so kind to everyone. And I was just super impressed with him. And I just had this feeling that I needed to get to know him. And I broke up with this other guy and we all, there was about six of us that just started hanging out all the time. And we had so much fun together and I knew and he knew that we wanted to get married before he even held hands. There was just wow. such a, wow. a clear, clear connection that we were best friends from forever ago. And during that time, I was actually hospitalized twice within just a couple months, which was really out of the ordinary because I hadn't been hospitalized for a few years before that. And I think it was just a crash course for the hard questions like this, mm -hmm. this is my life. And I told, you know, Patrick that, you know, I told him these hard things. I don't know my life expectancy. I'll probably need a kidney transplant. I don't know if I should have kids, all these things. And he was so, uh, so calm. And he just said, you know, I'd rather have you for a few years in this life and for eternity than nothing at all. Mm. And so he he knew and I knew. Wow. And how long have you been married? It will be 12 years in May. And you have a cutest little dog, Kiwi. Yes. yes. <laughs> the paddle boarding. It's like hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. He goes paddle boarding <laughs> with you. This is so funny to me. Oh, she loves it. We strap on her life jacket and oh, she's ready to go. That is she's the best. <laughs> that is the absolute best. She's our little fur baby. I love it. And so we you, are those people. You're those people with the dog. You just love that doggy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so you mentioned you weren't sure about kids. And can you talk a little bit about that that journey and how you've come to the decision that you have about your family? Yeah, I, so this was at the time when I hadn't started my book yet. I didn't really know grim statistics and, and so, you know, kids were still out there as maybe an option, you know, and maybe we'll adopt. I'm just not sure. 
And as I came to realize more about my health, how careful I need to be around germs, how easily I get pneumonia. And pneumonia is bad because it damages the lungs sometimes, not all the time, but it can damage the lungs and it increases the chance for rejection. Mm. So pneumonia is very serious in a in immune suppressed person and kids by nature are germy. So that was just like not, it didn't make sense to have kids because sure. of that reason. And then the second reason, just knowing, not knowing my life expectancy. Yeah. But at the same time, if I would have felt that I was supposed to have kids, I would have. But I I felt that I wasn't supposed to. So that's that's what we've chosen. Yeah. And and so now this is your normal and you have really felt prompted like this is our family. It's the two of us and Kiwi. And and this is and this is and you've created the most beautiful life. Is there any part of you and this is just me asking for people that may be curious and it may be, you know, not have the opportunity to ask when you see people that have kids and there's birth announcement things, is there any part of you that has a pang of, I wish I could do that? Honestly, there's not. Wow. What a, <laughs> I, what a gift. That is I, incredible. It is. I, you know, mother's day doesn't bother me. I truly feel blessed that that is a gift. And I think it comes back to the eternal perspective. Mm. I know that everything will be made right and glorious in the hereafter. And I am so not worried about the now. Wow. Like kids will be, you know, are, are great for those who have them. And that is their mission. But it wasn't meant for me right now. Right. And you were living out your story in the way that was meant for you. And, and when we honor that, whatever our story looks like, whether it's having kids or not, or living a certain place or having a certain job, whatever those details look like is so specific to us. And when and you are just a testament to the fact that when you're living the life that you were created for, it looks beautiful. And it and does. there's even more after yeah. this as well is is what you're talking about as as well. Right. And I well, I love the quote by uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland that says, Don't you quit, you keep walking, mm. you keep trying, there's help and happiness ahead. Some blessings come soon, some come late, some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Mm. It will all be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. And that's one of my favorite quotes. And I just believe that with all my heart. Yeah. And one amazing takeaway for anybody that's struggling with whatever hand they've been dealt. And if they're wrestling with being able to accept that, just realizing he's got you. He's got you. He's mindful of you. And he didn't give you this life on accident. None of this is on accident. Absolutely. And it's so fine to cry. Oh, Mm. goodness. I mean, I've cried. I cry. It's fine to cry. Pour your heart out. But then that's when you can feel the closest to the Lord sometimes. Mm. If you're if you turn to him through prayer, through your heartache, and that's when you can be strengthened and given not only new strength, but new perspective, which really is what will help you get through. Absolutely. And so with all of your health challenges, you have not been able to have a consistent traditional type work experience, the germs, the fatigue, hospitalizations, mm-hmm. things like that. But you have really found your passion and just your calling with this food <laughs> blog. Carlsbadcravings.com is one of my favorite recipe resources, like I've said. Tell me about doing that. Like, is it just the most fun? And how do you not run out of ideas? This is my question. <laughs> 
Carlsbad Cravings is such a tender mercy. I feel like my life is full of tender mercies, and this is just one of them. Because, you know, not having kids, it can be hard to feel like, oh, just like, what am I doing with my life? And I feel like Carlsbad Cravings is my passion, and it it is my baby in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not to compare mm-hmm. with real children. Sure. Story, but, you know, I see that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it takes so much time and effort, and I really do love it. And it all started after I had a kidney transplant in 20, 2014 or 13, 2013. And I knew I wasn't supposed to go back to the uh, real estate office I was in with all the the germs because I was extra immunosuppressed right after my transplant. And my sister-in-law said, you should start a food blog. I would read it. And I never thought about starting a food blog. But at the same time, I'd been cooking for years. I had this huge recipe binder where after I'd cook a recipe, I'd, you know, make all my changes because I'd usually base it off of a recipe, then I'd write my own recipe, I'd find mm. a picture that looked like it on online, and I'd had this whole huge recipe binder and a and a photo recipe index. That's how nutty I was about wow. recipes. I just loved cooking. So it's always been a passion. So I feel like I'd been prepared for this. And when she said that, it just kind of struck a chord with me, and I felt like I should look into it. And so I researched it, and found that it could actually be a profession and not just a hobby. And so I dove, you know, straight in and I knew that I was going to do it right from the beginning and treat it like a job. And so I, I did, and it just took off like crazy and I love it so much. It's a lot, a lot of time and a lot of work, but it is, so worth it. It's all all fun things, mostly. Yes. Well, and it's not just the recipe aspect and the food aspect. It's the photography. It's There's just so many but, parts to being a food blogger. Oh, there's so many layers. Yeah. I really – one day I want to do like a day in the life because yes, there are so many things that go into it. There's so much social media, uh, so many um, different you know Pinterest groups, Facebook groups. There's uh, video making and editing. There's – there's the researching the recipes, there's the creating the recipes, there's the grocery shopping, there's the photographing, there's the editing the photos, choosing the photos, which I have a problem with, editing <laughs> the photos, um, then writing the posts, like, and then, yeah, it's it's a lot, it's a lot, but it's, I love that it's a lot because there's so many different layers to it, which keeps it fun and interesting. Right, and there's always something to work on, whether it's new recipes or improving photography or networking and getting the word out more. I mean, what a great project to be working on. And you're serving so many people through this platform. And I think people are endeared to you because you've also been able to share aspects of your story throughout your blog as well, which I think really endear people to you. Oh, thank you. I do have my love story <laughs> on my site, which I get so many kind comments on. I bet. And yeah, it's it's great to be able to interact with readers who comment and email and to feel like, you know, there's real people on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's so rewarding. I didn't expect that to be such a huge part of it, and it's one of my favorites. I love it. And, I mean, we've mentioned it just briefly, but you also wrote a book. Can you just tell people where they can find the book? And it's basically just an entire, more detailed version of the story that you told today. Um, but it is so well done, Jen. So touching, yeah. so inspirational. And it is 
a great gift to give somebody that is going through something hard. Very few people have walked where you have walked specifically, but we've all had challenges. And so I think it is so relatable to see how somebody else got through something so challenging and is thriving on the other side of it. So tell people about your book. Well, thank you so much. My book was just, it was a labor of love. It's not something I wanted to do, but I felt like I should do it. My family's pretty private. And so I, you know, I, I had to, to be like, okay, we're, we're doing this. <laughs> this <is supposed laughs> we're we're out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so my book, it's called My Heroes Ask Wallflowers to Dance. And you can buy it on Amazon. And the name came from my brother, Justin, who passed away, who loved to go to dances, the church dances, and he would always ask the wallflowers to dance. And so the name is, the title is a metaphor for life, for looking outside your comfort zone and asking wallflowers to to dance, you know, in Mm -hmm. whatever capacity that may be. And so it's, it's a tribute to my brother, Justin, to my parents, to my donors, to my community, to the doctors. It's, it's really amazing to see my story all in a concise book form, because that is how I see one of the ways I see all the tender mercies in my life that have made my life possible. Mm. And at the end of the book, you know, writing a book is overwhelming. I didn't know how to really weave everything together. And at the end, I decided to do life lessons. So I think I have 12 life lessons at the book, which hopefully, you know, inspire and and help people in their own journey. I'm sure it definitely did in mine. Oh, what an amazing, amazing book. So we're almost done. I have one question. So sometimes I feel like I just waste time during the day. I feel like, oh, I'll get to something tomorrow. Oh, I can just be lazy or whatever. Do you feel like that? You are just in a different space, really, than than most typical people. How do you view the days when you don't feel like doing your to-dos and things like that? Like, Do you ever feel like you don't want to waste a single moment because you realize how life how precious life truly is, or do you give yourself a pass sometimes? Oh, we all need to give ourselves a pass. Okay, <laughs> okay good. <laughs> I, so my job is very busy. I could work like a gazillion hours of a week if I wanted. And so for me, it really giving myself a pass and letting, I have to actually make myself relax. Mm. But to me, that's not wasting time. If I get to, you know, binge on Netflix and snuggle with Patrick, that is the best use of my time there could possibly be. Mm. And if there's, you know, and I think wasting time is different than doing what's on your to-do list or not doing what's on your to-do list. Mm. If there's something good and productive that's not on your to-do list, then that's what you should try and be doing. And I try and do that. It's super, it's can be super hard, but I try and think, okay, who, you know, who needs me today or, and I don't do that every day, but you know, thoughts like that where you're trying to be more proactive in living a, uh, a helpful, you know, kind serving life instead of, uh, everything that's on your to-do list that, which really most often doesn't matter. So I think with all of us, it's just the perspective thing again and again and again. It's going back to what really matters. 
And for me, that really is making memories. And I, so Patrick and I, we try and travel. um, And that's something we have more on our to-do list uh, this year and just really making memories. And I don't think it matters necessarily what those memories are. If, as long as you're spending time together with your family, that's the very most important. Yeah. So it's just a matter of being intentional about how you spend your time. It doesn't mean you have to be productive all the time or doing work or doing grand things, but it's just that intention that you're living your life with. And it's like, that's, my intention yeah. is spending time with my husband on the couch watching Netflix. And it's not like minutes wasted. It's time well spent because that's how you're choosing it. Yes, perfectly mm. said. Absolutely. Oh, man. I love it. Well, what's what's next for you? Is there anything on the horizon for you <laughs> to be excited about? Oh, to me, I, I act, honestly, I want to, you know, I work less and travel more and just really, really enjoy life for, for what it is. Mm. I don't plan on um, – doing anything more career-wise, I don't think. You know, I've had lots of cookbook offers, but that's a lot of time and effort, and that's not what I want to spend my time doing right now. Mm. And I and I love the idea that my recipes right now are accessible to everyone uh, instead of just in a cookbook. So, uh, so, yeah, what's next is just keep on living an intentional mm-hmm. life and and stay alive. (laughs) Amazing. Just keep living, keep living. Well, Jen, I always ask my guests one final question and traditionally they're mothers on this show. So I say, what would you tell your pre-motherhood self? But to you, I want to ask, what would you tell your pre-lung transplant self? Ooh, I think like all of us, if we could look back at our former selves, we'd say, you know, don't worry. Everything's going to work out. I think coming from where I was, I would tell myself, you know, someday you're going to have energy. You're not going to have the desire to cough 24 seven and you're going to marry the best man on the planet. Yeah. And it's all going to be the way it's supposed to be. And so worrying any amount of time is a wasted energy. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it, it's, you know, <laughs> my dad used to say half the things we worry about, you know, never happens. So yeah. there's, there's just no, no good thing comes from worrying. No. Jen, you're incredible. You are truly extraordinary. I am so glad that I have come to know you and your story because it, it, I really think about it quite often. And it must be kind of weird to think of people thinking of you when you don't even know them. <laughs> But it's true, and it's just really neat because I know how private your family is and how much courage and vulnerability it takes to put yourself out there. But when you know that you are reaching people who want to live better, more intentional, meaningful lives because you have expressed how thankful you are just to be alive, you keep sharing. You just got to keep sharing. So thank you for your recipes. Thank you for sharing and coming on the podcast today. You are truly an extraordinary woman. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute honor. Have a great, great day. Thank you. You too. Okay. I told you. Did you grab your tissues? (laughs) Jen is remarkable. She is truly one of the most extraordinary people I have ever 
known. If you want to find out more about her story, I really encourage you to check out her book, My Heroes Ask Wallflowers to Dance. I've had that linked on the website, extraordinarymomspodcast.com. You can pick that up on Amazon. It is so well done and you will love reading this book. It is incredible. It goes into even more details about the medical aspects of her journey, but then also her perspective on life and everything is there as well. So that has been one of the most impactful books that I have ever read in my entire life. And I hope that if you pick it up, that you'll feel the same way. So thanks, Jen, for coming on the show. Check out her website, Carlsbad Cravings. I've linked a couple of my favorite recipes on the website as well, but Everything that she writes is so good. So go to carlsbadcravings.com for that. You can follow her on Instagram. Everything's linked. You can follow me on Instagram at jessicadalquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. And like I said, show notes, pictures of Jen, links to everything we talked about, extraordinarymomspodcast.com. Thank you so, so much for tuning into the show today. If you liked what you heard, I would love it if you would just press the three little buttons on the side of the episode to share the episode. I'd love you to tag me in your stories or on social media to share the show, let people know that you're listening, and let people know who might also benefit from these amazing conversations and these incredible women. Let's get the word out about Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in every single week. You guys are the best. I'm going to have another great episode on Friday and another one next Tuesday. So we'll see you next week for another episode with another extraordinary mom. Bye.